Epilepsy can cause misfires in brain circuitry, whereby bad discharges are spread from neuron to neuron, manifesting in seizures. Anybody can have a seizure if they have something happen. But if nothing in particular is happening and you're having seizures spontaneously and it happens more than once, then that's epilepsy. But research is leading to better understanding of epilepsy. We can study activity in the brain real time, you know, with millisecond resolution, with relatively high accuracy without having to invade the brain. And later, learn from someone recently diagnosed with it. There weren't days or weeks that something felt off, so really there was no indication that something was about to change. Discover living with epilepsy. Inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighert Hospital, Versity, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Epilepsy. Most of us have heard of it, but unless we have it ourselves or know someone who does, few have a good understanding of what exactly it is. Today, we learn about epilepsy from some experts in the field of epileptology. Dr. Sean Liu is a professor, Department of Neurosurgery, at the Medical College of Wisconsin, the Mardek Vandenberg Chair of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Children's Wisconsin, and Director of Epilepsy Surgery at Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin. Dr. Liu first tells us... The easy way to think about epilepsy is it's kind of the spread of bad electrical activity in the brain that causes whatever brain involved with that spread to not function properly. Resulting in seizures. Epilepsy is if you're having more than one seizure in an unprovoked way. So anybody can have a seizure if they have something happen. But if nothing in particular is happening and you're having seizures spontaneously and it happens more than once then that's epilepsy. How common of a condition is epilepsy? It's very common, usually in the 1% to 2% range prevalence in the general population. About 3.5 million estimated in the U.S. have epilepsy. Is it a genetic condition someone is born with? There are certainly genetic conditions where people have identified gene mutations that predisposes them to having seizures. There are genetic conditions where no gene has been identified, but there's an inherited increased risk of having seizures. On the other hand, there are forms that are acquired. Basically, any insult to the brain, a stroke, tumor, traumatic injury, bad infection, if it's affecting the brain, it has the possibility of being a source of seizures. And while there's different causes, there are different classifications of epilepsy. 
which Dr. Liu admits. The classification for epilepsies is fairly confusing and ever-changing. To simplify it, he explains there's symptomatic epilepsy. Symptomatic epilepsy is a broad category where there's an identifiable brain disorder causing the epilepsy, like a tumor, for example. Then there's idiopathic epilepsy. Idiopathic is when there's no underlying cause that can be determined. And in that case, you presume that it's a hereditary or genetic cause. And also cryptogenic epilepsy. Cryptogenic is presumed to be symptomatic. You presume that there's some brain disorder, but that brain disorder has not been yet identified. But the key difference between idiopathic and cryptogenic is idiopathic is presumed to be inherited, whereas cryptogenic is presumed to be some underlying brain disorder that has yet to be identified, but not necessarily something that someone was born with. What happens physiologically when someone's having an epileptic seizure? Neurons in the brain communicate to each other electrically, basically. And there are normal pathways where cells communicate with other cells. And then there are pathologic communications where bad discharges are spread from neuron to neuron. And when neurons are affected by those bad discharges... They stop working or or work in an abnormal way. So if you have enough of that happening in the brain, then that leads to a seizure where there's some external manifestation of that bad electricity. This can affect a limited portion of the brain. Which would be a focal seizure. So if you have that happening in the part of the brain that controls your face, then you might have part of your face twitching, but you could be awake and otherwise aware of what's going on. But when it impacts the whole brain... Then it becomes generalized, leading to loss of consciousness. And so in general, focal is referring to a small part of the brain, and generalized is the entire brain. Are seizures potentially dangerous? Yes. Think about things that you do that put you in a dangerous situation if you suddenly lost or had impaired consciousness. Driving, operating machinery, water sports. And then there's something called sudden unexpected death from epilepsy or SUDEP incidence of that is estimated to be up to 2% per year dying from seizures. Apart from catastrophic or life-threatening risks, over time... Epilepsy takes a toll on how the brain functions. People in general progressively have deterioration in their cognitive function over time if they have frequent seizures. And can take a toll on developing brains in children. If you have a lot of seizures early on in life, that kind of limits the ultimate endpoint of development and puts a ceiling on what's possible. If you're having lots of seizures in those early developmental windows, then there are loss opportunities that can never be reversed. Adults can also be impacted by epilepsy beyond seizures. Problems with the brain tend to cluster. So if your brain's not working to the point that you're having seizures, then it's often not working in other ways. Learning problems, memory problems. These things are at higher risk, not necessarily because seizures are causing them, but because other things are also being affected besides causing seizures. Making effective treatment of epilepsy critically important. The first line is medication. And thankfully, most people can be controlled with medication. But probably about a third of patients cannot be. And if you fail the first two medications, then the likelihood of a third or fourth medication getting you to stop having seizures is very remote. That's when Dr. Liu provides his expertise in a couple of broad categories. First, diagnostic surgeries. There's surgeries that are 
to better understand where the seizures are coming from. So these are diagnostic procedures where electrodes are implanted in the brain or around the brain, trying to capture seizures and using the changes seen with those electrodes to understand where the seizures are starting from, and that can inform what the options can be to treat the seizures. Second, therapeutic surgeries. It can mean removing a part of the brain where seizures are coming from. It can mean disconnecting brain where the seizures are coming from, leaving it in place, but disconnecting it from the rest of the brain so it cannot affect the person anymore. If it's coming from a very small area, we can do what's called an ablation, a minimally invasive option. And more recently, brain stimulation. Rather than removing brain, disconnecting it, those techniques are not great options if where the seizures are coming from is also the brain that's being used for specific functions. So you can stimulate it with a kind of an implanted stimulator and have an area of the brain modified over time and not have it taken out of service for the function that part of the brain's performing. Dr. Liu says people living with epilepsy often face limitations. Driving is certainly one of them. Legally, in most states, you cannot drive unless you've been seizure-free over the past three months. And practically speaking, most epileptologists often advise longer periods of seizure freedom than that. And consequences. There's high incidence of difficulty maintaining relationships, holding down jobs, living independently. These are consequences of epilepsy for many people. But people with epilepsy can maintain a good quality of life. The majority of patients with epilepsy can be well controlled with medication. If it's not working, I would highly encourage people to explore surgical options if they're a candidate for that. Because if you're able to stop it with surgery, it's literally life-changing. Let's build on what we've learned about epilepsy by also discovering how it's diagnosed and researched. For this, we consult with another expert. Dr. Manoj Raghavan is a professor, Department of Neurology, at the Medical College of Wisconsin and director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Centers at Fredericton Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Wisconsin. The Comprehensive Epilepsy Center is a clinical program that strives to provide a comprehensive suite of diagnostic and therapeutic options to patients with difficult-to-control seizures. This obviously requires a multidisciplinary team and also requires a substantial hospital infrastructure, which includes an outpatient clinic, but also a specialized inpatient epilepsy monitoring unit for management of seizures or for diagnostic purposes, determining what kind of epilepsy they have or where a particular patient's seizures arise from in the brain. The overarching goals of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Center, or CEC, are twofold. First, clinical. To provide access to a comprehensive battery of diagnostic and treatment options for patients. Almost all comprehensive epilepsy programs in the U.S. reside at academic medical centers. As such, the training of future neurologists and epileptologists on all aspects of specialized epilepsy care is an integral part of what a comprehensive epilepsy program does. So education is an important goal. And second, research. Because the clinical challenges that we encounter in our patients are also what drives research questions, that becomes an integral part of our activity as well not only into the nature of epilepsy and clinically applied research in epilepsy, but sometimes the diagnostic tools that we employ in epilepsy patients. So research on basic science topics are often pursued in programs like ours. 
As in many areas of medicine today, the focus of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Center is on precision or individualized care. There is seldom a one-size-fits-all remedy. Not all patients respond to seizure medications the same way. So working with a specialized epilepsy team with extensive knowledge and experience of these drugs becomes really important to optimize medication regimens for individual patients. And for patients who qualify for non-drug treatments, such as surgery or devices... An important part of the evaluation is determining regions of the brain that give rise to seizures. Not only do you want to know where these seizures come from, but also where normal functions live in relation to those areas that give rise to seizures. So mapping epileptic circuits as well as mapping function has to be customized because there is so much variation across patients in how things are laid out in the brain. But while focusing on an individual patient, conversely, it takes a multidisciplinary team to do so most effectively. That includes epileptologists, neurologists who have specialized in epilepsy, then there are neurosurgeons, there are neuropsychologists. We depend upon neuroradiologists who specialize in structural but also functional imaging of the brain and a team of EEG technologists recording brainwave activity in our epilepsy monitoring units. And then obviously we have nurses and nurse practitioners who have specialized in epilepsy, a fairly large team to keep our program going. Dr. Raghavan further explains both the Freydert and the Children's Wisconsin CECs are Level 4 certified by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers. The National Association of Epilepsy Centers was established as a way for epilepsy centers to collaborate on establishing standards across centers, and they have come up with standards that programs must meet to be recognized as either a Level 3 or Level 4 epilepsy center, the Level 4 epilepsy program being the highest rating one that provides more complex forms of intensive treatment. The NAEC also establishes guidelines for primary care physicians. As to when they should refer a patient to specialized centers. So if your seizures have not been brought under control after three months of care by a primary care provider, further neurological evaluation by a neurologist is recommended. And if you've seen a general neurologist and your seizures have not been brought under control after about 12 months, you should request a referral to a specialized epilepsy center with an epileptologist. The CEC at Freydert and Children's Wisconsin also have Wisconsin's only magnetoencephalography, or MEG, program. What exactly is MEG? MEG, or magnetoencephalography, is a technique for recording the very weak magnetic fields that are generated by electrical activity within the brain. Electrical activity in the brain produces very weak magnetic fields. In order to be able to pick up those magnetic fields, first, you need a very sensitive detector. Secondly, you need a magnetically shielded environment. So that's what a MEG scanner involves. Dr. Raghavan further explains that sensors are positioned immediately above the head, and modern MEG systems usually have a few hundred sensors that are located around the head. Now, the big advantage is that when we record magnetic activity of the brain using a large array of sensors, we can localize things that are happening in the brain with much greater spatial resolution. Making MEG technology a valuable research tool to study brain physiology, our center has had a MEG scanner since 2008. It is currently the only MEG scanner available in Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa, and provides clinical MEG studies for patients from other epilepsy programs in these neighboring states. 
thus enabling the CEC to expertly map critical areas of brain function and hopefully reduce the frequency and severity of epileptic seizures. We can study activity in the brain real time, you know, with millisecond resolution, with relatively high accuracy without having to invade the brain. There are no other technologies that provide us that kind of whole brain coverage that we are very interested in looking at from the perspective of both mapping dysfunction and normal functions of the brain. There are other tools for studying brain function, including electrocorticography, which is used to record activity directly from the surface of the brain or from brain tissue directly in order to localize where seizures arise from. So patients get these implanted electrodes to determine precisely where their seizures come from before considering epilepsy surgery to remove the regions of the brain that give rise to seizures. But there's a disadvantage compared to Meg. You obviously cannot place electrodes on every square millimeter of the brain. So most of those electrodes are positioned close to areas where we suspect that the seizures are coming from because that's what we are trying to determine. But still, there is currently a lot of research being done using these signals there's also brain mapping research utilizing functional MRI. One of the important clinical applications of fMRI is in mapping brain regions. If you're planning some kind of surgery on the brain, such as epilepsy surgery, for instance, fMRI is increasingly used by many epilepsy programs. And new uses of both MEG and functional MRI. Looking at how different regions of the brain interact with each other. Many functions in the brain are not localized just to one region. It's a network dispersed across different areas. If you wanted to understand how tasks are executed, you really have to look at how different areas of the brain turn on and off. And that's possible with something called functional connectivity. So that's an area that we are looking at with both fMRI and MEG. Another area of epilepsy research and treatment involves the implantation of devices. The first of these was a device called the vagus nerve stimulator, which is a pulse generator that sends a wire to a nerve in the neck called the vagus nerve, basically turning on and off 24-7. And the long-term stimulation of that nerve has been found to reduce seizures over time. The second device is responsive neurostimulation. Electrodes planted over the regions of the brain causing your seizures, the device monitors the electrical activity from that part of the brain. And when it senses changes that lead to a seizure, it will disrupt that activity and stop it in a fraction of a second. And a third device. Deep brain stimulation, where output from that device travels to a deep location in the brain called the thalamus. So over the next decade or so, we'll probably get a much better handle on what targets are best for different types of epilepsy. Hopefully, continued research unlocks mysteries of epilepsy yet to be discovered. It's an exciting time to be in the field of epileptology because technology has advanced drastically. Taking us towards treatment options, less invasive to get the data that you want and make better use of that data using things like artificial intelligence or machine learning. Leading to better outcomes for patients with epilepsy. I'm very optimistic that a lot of the efforts that are ongoing across epilepsy centers around the world will lead to using smarter ways to prevent seizures. What's it like living with epilepsy? We're about to find out from a young woman who discovered she has epilepsy just one year ago. Let's meet her now. I 
am Leah, so I'm Waukesha, and then I did go to school in UW. There I studied to be a nurse, and since then I've been a psychiatric nurse with children. She lives an active lifestyle, always has, from childhood through her teen years and into adulthood. Someone who was always healthy. I had no concerns as a child or a teen at all. I did a lot of sports. I spent a lot of time eating well, and I was fine. In adulthood, Leah says she did have some common lifestyle challenges. For instance, being a nurse, my schedule is always kind of hectic. It changes all the time, so I would try to go to the gym, work out at least three times a week. I would try to sleep as much as I could consistently. Again, overall, pretty healthy. Young, active, healthy. Her whole life ahead of her. Hoping to practice as a psychiatric nurse practitioner and have kids, have family, spend my time traveling. Until one day, Leah says everything changed. There weren't days or weeks that something felt off. So really there was no indication that something was about to change. But on that day... This was the morning of August 28th, 2022. I was just stopping to get a coffee with my friend and bring some to my mom. Suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere... started seeing a bunch of weird spots in my eyes. And I kind of thought that he would just pass. And I remember I told my friend, hey, this is kind of weird. And my friend said, well, do we need to stop? And I said, no, it'll probably stop soon. It didn't stop. And then all of a sudden, things become really blurry. And her vision quickly worsened. Things just becoming, like, wavy. So at that time, I then told my friend, hey, something weird is happening. And they were like, well, we need to pull over. But pulling over was going to be a challenge. Because, unfortunately, I was behind the wheel, which makes everything a bit more terrifying. Fortunately, Leah, with the help of her friend, was able to pull the car over just in time. I remember as we were turning to go and park, everything was starting to close in and turn black. And I had to actually have my friend help me to park the car because I couldn't even see out the sides of my eyes. The car was safely stopped. However, Leah's condition continued to deteriorate. I then remember flashing rainbow and black lights in the corner of my eyes, and I felt like I couldn't stop staring at it. And when it started to move, my head actually moved with it, and then everything stopped. Leah had experienced her first epileptic seizure. Next thing I recall is I'm sitting in the ambulance and I see my mom and my stepdad and my friend and they looked terrified. They all had tears in their eyes and I recall starting to sob because it didn't seem real. Didn't seem real even when EMTs told her, Hey Leah, we believe you might have just had a seizure and we're here to just take you to get checked out. I had no idea what was happening. But she soon discovered what was happening. And at 28 years old, Leah learned she has epilepsy. I remember at the ER, I got a bunch of lab tests done. Then they just referred me to go and see a neurologist. 
when she saw a neurologist. They reviewed my notes from the ER, and at that time I found out that I seized for probably a minute and a half in the car that day. Then, Leah's neurologist told her, I want to do a bunch of scans to see if we know why this is happening. You had a seizure. We don't know if it will happen again, and we might not like ever know where it came from or how it started. They needed to learn whatever they could. I had to get an EEG where they put all those sticky cords on my head, and they had to do a bunch of tests with light, and then they called me and said that there were some abnormal waves on the left side of my brain that they believe potentially had caused a short circuit that day, and then I seized. And they said there is high potential for this to happen again. Leading her to question... Why is this happening to me? I grew up healthy. This was completely out of the blue. Still, a definite diagnosis of epilepsy didn't come... Unfortunately, until I seized again. Which happened just a couple of months later. On October 4th, I started to have a few of those symptoms again. And then I actually seized in the pick and save. Thank God it was less severe. So I went back in and they told me, this is now a thing that you might continue to have for your entire life. For Leah, it created more questions. Will this go away? What am I supposed to do? Why is this happening now? Why hasn't this been happening since I was young? It was a lot of why. And she admits a certain amount of... Being in denial and being like, this has to be something else. For a split second, I wanted it to be a tumor because I wanted it to be taken out and then this would stop. The diagnosis impacted both her day-to-day life and her immediate future. I was a mess, constantly worried and felt like I needed to change my life, but I didn't want to. Like, will I still be able to go to work? Will I still be able to complete school and go on to practice? Do I have the brain power to do that? And even if she did, there was another significant challenge. You cannot drive for three months. It's a state law. How am I supposed to go to school, go to work, live like a young girl in my 20s if I can't drive. Thankfully, Leah adapted. She's also grown comfortable telling everyone in her life she has epilepsy. I have been very open with people about it. I've told all my friends, I've told everyone at work, and tell people who I'm with, if this happens, I need your help in this way if I can't help myself at that point. Today, her epilepsy is being treated with medication. I currently take two different meds. Some of the meds, you have to start low dose and go up slowly. I started on those, and then once I seized again, they had to go up pretty high on them. Hopefully it's working. Knock on wood. She's encouraged by options and advancements in treatments available. I'm very thankful that there are several different meds that you can take. So in the event that my treatment becomes ineffective, there are things I can do. Thank God I'm relatively stable. But if that were to change, I would have those options. There's something else she's thankful for. Right now, I live, honestly, a very normal life. I don't really have any things I can't do. 
which isn't to say there aren't still legitimate concerns. What do I do if this happens when I'm alone? Will I still be at a point that I can keep myself safe? So that is a big fear that I have every day. Despite that fear, Leah is getting on with her life, living with epilepsy. I'm feeling a lot more confident that I can continue to live the life I want and still do these things like complete school, have a family. Just very grateful that I still can live that life and have this. Epilepsy, you momentarily slowed Leah down, but you won't keep her down. Thankfully, I have the personality to say, you can't control my life at all. That's all the time we have for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As always, thanks to each of our guests for appearing on today's show. Dr. Sean Liu, Dr. Manoj Raghavan, And special thanks to Leah for sharing her experience living with epilepsy. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Bellmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.